I'm trying to decide if it's hard to preach after that or easy to preach after that. And I, I honestly, like, I can't decide. Uh, part of me wants to just do the benediction and go home. Um, well, y'all could go home. I'm here for another several hours. Um, thank you, everybody, for leading us so well in worship and reminding us of crowning Christ the King. If you are uh, new to Mitchell Road, this might be a surprising statement. If you're not new to Mitchell Road, you've heard this a zillion times, that life is about relationships because God is a God of relationships. God exists uh, perfectly in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally, and we exist for relationships. Matter of fact, the theme verse of the entire Bible, as far as I'm concerned, is Revelation 21.3, I will be your God and I want you to be my people. And throughout life, we look to certain relationships to give us peace and to give us security. And the relationships actually change all throughout life because they help us for a while and then all relationships eventually fail us. So for instance, when you're, when you're just born, you need a relationship with your parents. You need a mom and a dad to bring you some kind of peace, some kind of security. But then you move on from that. And you want a best friend. In elementary school, you want a best friend. That's why security questions for your financial brokerage accounts usually is, what's your pet or what was your childhood best friend? Because they know all of us could probably say, oh, it's this person. I know who that person was. I had that person. But that person eventually leaves you and they break up with you. You have to find another group of friends or another girlfriend or another boyfriend and they eventually break up with you. And maybe you're lucky enough to get married, but even that helpmate, you sometimes hurt and sometimes they fail you. For example, uh, on Friday, I told my wife uh, we had to leave. We went separate ways. I knew she had a hair appointment. Uh, We reconvened at noon and I said, oh, babe, I love what they did with your hair. And she looked at me and she said, The appointment's not till three (laughs) o'clock. And and both of my, my, that was fine. I mean, I've had that problem before. I I said, it looks great either way. And uh, both of my daughters, both of my daughters went, dad. I mean, both of them. Or my son, when my son was five, you have kids, you hope kids will be your identity. And my son was five, he said, hey, Dad, I'm pretty sure you're taller than Mom, but I know she's smarter than you. I'm like, I <laughs> agreed. I can concur to that point. You, you try to find a mentor somewhere in life, but then your mentor can't answer all your questions. You find a coach or you find a boss that you hope will bring you security and you bring you peace. Sometimes you need a relationship with a mechanic. Just don't overcharge me or a relationship with a lawyer to guide you through something. We're always looking for certain relationships that we hope will help, that will make us whole. If you're just joining us, we're not going to leave our reg- regularly scheduled programming as a church. We've been going through the Bible and we're reading through and what we see in 1 Samuel 16 is this, that the people have always been looking for relationships. First they look for the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Uh, and and then they look for uh, the period of the judges. Maybe there's a judge that will help us. Uh, Maybe there's a priest like, like Moses, maybe he can be the one who guides us. Uh, Maybe we can find another Ruth. Maybe we can find another Esther. Maybe we can find this judge would be good or this judge would be good. Maybe one day we can find a prophet that will really tell us who God is. And in the text this morning, their hope was maybe a king. Maybe if we find somebody that we can crown, 
Somebody that we can put in the White House. Somebody that we can adore. Somebody that we can let hold court. Maybe then that will be the relationship. But the King David, who's anointed in this text today, we're going to see fails again and again and again and again. And everybody throughout all of the Old Testament have been looking for some type of relationship to make them whole. And the thesis today is this. The relationship you need is one with the risen king. The risen king. So there's four points. 4-H, if you grew up doing 4-H, which I'm not sure if you did. My wife did, actually. You can remember this. The heart of the risen king, the hands of the risen king, the healing of the risen king, and the home of the risen king. Let's look at this text, 1 Samuel 16. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. In other words, maybe this is the one. We'll find him now. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on the appearance or on the height of her statue because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and he made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent him, and he brought him in, and he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. The people were looking for a king. They were already 0 for 1. They had already tried Saul, and it didn't work. And and they thought, if we just go now to this house of Jesse, and if we find the biggest, the brightest, the tallest, it will work. But each one that was brought before, just like picking basketball, nope, not you, not you, not you, not you. Is there anybody else? And Jesse says, well, yeah, I have the run of the litter. I mean, he's cute like a puppy. He's beautiful in his eyes, but he's really not, you know, we don't even pay attention to him. He's out there doing the sheep thing right now. He said, no, bring him in, and that's David. Now, interestingly, the heart of the risen king, the heart of a risen king is one who looks at our hearts. So if you see back in verse 7, I do not look on the appearance of the height of the statue because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It is easy to believe that this life is about impressing people. That that's all that this life is about. You go on the first date and you dress up to impress. You go to an interview, you dress up to impress. You go visit a sitting president or a king or royalty or anybody of importance. You dress up, you put on an outward appearance. All throughout high school, all throughout college, you put on a facade. An outward appearance of what you want people to think about you. But the Lord looks at the heart. The heart of the risen king looks through all of your morality, looks through all of your efforts, looks through all of your dress, looks through all of the things that you say that you are, and he sees your heart, and that's a beautiful thing. Because David's heart was after 
his Lord. But he was a mess. Uh, He was an adulterer. His family fell into shambles. He had so much blood on his hands by the end of his life that God said, I'm not going to let you build my temple. There's too much blood on your hands. I won't let you do it. But the Lord saw time and time again that he repented and he was a man after God's own heart. It's a beautiful thing that the heart of the risen king looks at our hearts. And it's also a scary thing. Because as it says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So it's beautiful, and at the same time, it's scary because God knows what you think before you go to bed at night. And he knows who you don't like. And he knows the arguments that you went in the shower when you had a frustrating business meeting. And he knows what you really believe about your spouse and what you really believe about your kids. And he knows all the depth of your sinful heart. He knows all of that. Well, how could he ever love you? If he knows everything about you, everything that you've been trying to hide with the facade, with the outward appearance, how could a God who's pure and good ever love you? The hands of the risen king, point two. So we see Mark 6, Jesus comes as this new king. And in Mark chapter 6, it says, And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished and said, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to them? How are such mighty works done by his hands? The heart of the king sends Christ, the hands of the risen king, to do the things that we can't do. And the people in the New Testament marveled at it. Look at the work of his hands. I want you to pretend that you're a younger uh, sibling. And some of you don't have to pretend you are younger siblings. But pretend you're a younger sibling. You have an older brother. And uh, your parents have been asking you for weeks, I need you to do these chores, these chores, these chores, and these chores before you can go out. You delay, you procrastinate, now it's the ninth hour and you only have a few minutes to do them, and what do you do? You don't do them. You just leave them undone. Completely rebellious, you completely disobey. You go out, you go to the party, you feel bad about it the whole time, then you walk, you go back home, you're nervous about it, You open the door, you're waiting for your dad, your mom just to come down on you. And instead you open the door and they hug you. You say, this is not normal, this is not what I expected. And you come to find out that your older brother did all of your chores for you. Everything that you were intended to do, everything that you were supposed to do, your older brother did for you and now that gets credited to you. Now, that's what Christ does. He does all the things that we can't do in keeping the law perfectly so we can walk into the Father's house and the Father can say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. But look, friends, it's even, it's even deeper than that because uh, God so loved the world that he sent his son. So actually what happens theologically is this. God the Father says to the older son, the older, what we call the older brother, says to Jesus, they're never going to be able to do these chores in time, but I love them. And I don't want to have to punish them. I need you to do all of their chores for them. And the obedience of Christ is to say, not your, my, my will, but your will be done. I will do their chores for them because you love them. 
And I, out of obedience, will do everything that they can't do for themselves so that you, the Father, can have a relationship with my younger brothers and my younger sisters. It's a beautiful thing. But the irony is, uh, we kill them with our hands. His hands do everything that we can't do, but our hands want to kill them. So look at John chapter 19. I think all of these will be on the screen. Or you can flip through your Bible. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with two others, one on either side, Jesus between them, Pilate wrote on the inscription, put it on the cross, it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. As I'd like to remind you, written in three languages so nobody would miss the joke. So the chief priest and the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said he's the king of the Jews. Let's qualify this a little bit, Pilate. And Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. So interesting. His hands do everything for us, but then our hands actually want to kill him, want to pierce his hands. Why? Have you ever played uh, King of the Hill? I have. Many, many of you probably have not, um, but I grew up playing King of the Hill. You know, we didn't have phones. We didn't have Wii's. We, didn't have, we had piles of dirt. That's what we had. And I lived in the neighborhood that was like kind of out in the boonies a little bit, and there'd be new construction a lot of times. And so the bulldozer would come in, and we, as kids, we would get so excited when the bulldozer would come in to build a house, and they would clear it out, do the grading, and there'd be a pile of dirt. And we, as kids, we were like, yes, dirt, a pile of dirt. We're so excited. Let's play King of the Hill. And we would do it for hours and hours and hours. Here's how it works. You should try it. We can pile up some dirt in the back and y'all can do it, do it for youth group. For hours, you try to get to the top to be king of the hill. And then when you're at the top, you're king of the hill. Then the game is you stay there for as long as you can. And you get knocked down. So what do you do? You have to get back to the top again. You have to be king of the hill again. And for so many of us, that's what we do. We say, I want to be in charge of my life, Jesus. I, I don't want you to be the king of the hill. I want to be the king of the hill. But it's impossible to rest once you're at the top, isn't it? You're always on your guard. You're always wondering what's going to come next. You can never rest when you're the king of the hill. You can never relax up there. You're, you're just thinking, where's the next threat going to come from? That's why George MacDonald said, and this is so convicting, George MacDonald said, the central conviction of hell, meaning the one thing that everybody in hell shares, the central conviction of hell is this, I'm my own and I can do what I want. That's the central conviction of hell. I am my own and I can do what I want. Now, some of you might say this, you might say, Andy, that's, you're being a little harsh. I don't want to be my own. I know I need a little help from Jesus every now and then. I need, I need some spirituality. I need some of that. Uh, this seems a little bit harsh to me. And I want to be pilot. I want to be able to just kind of wash my hands. I want to be able to say, you know, I'll, I'll write what I wrote. It is what it is. I'll, I'll wait and see what happens at the end. Here's what I want to say. Being agnostic saying, I'm, I'm not sure how this works out, or I need a little spirituality. That is an un 
untenable position when you're looking down the lens of a historical Jesus who is resurrected. It's an untenable position because Christ himself says this, either crown me or kill me, but don't just play nice with me. Don't just dress up and say my words were just great ideas or great morals or great principles or great things to live by. Either crown me king or kill me. Do one of the other. And so it's an interesting position that we're in. Now here's what we see. It's the hands that we pierced that the Father raises to conquer death, hell, and the grave. So Ephesians 1, and as I told the sunrise service this morning, I'm reading a lot of scripture because I really just want to tenderize you with scripture today. So Ephesians 1, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope that you have called you to, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance to the saints, and what are the immeasurable greatness of his power towards those who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he, meaning God the Father, raised him, meaning Christ, from the dead. And then what did he do with him? Seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places for above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one that is to come and put all things under his feet and gave him the head over all things, the head of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That text doesn't allow us to have the position Oh, Jesus was just a good moral person. Jesus just did some good things. I just need a little bit of his principles, a little bit of his morality. No, that verse says, look, you either have to crown him king or you have to pierce his hands. And let's just talk at this point, just for, give me uh, two minutes, if you're not a believer, give me two or three minutes just to talk to you about the resurrection. Uh, because some of you might not be agnostic. You might be complete skeptics. You might say, Andy, there's no way. I don't believe in the resurrection. There's no way that could happen. And here's what I want to say. Don't you think the first century believers, don't you think they had the same objection? They did. You're not any more enlightened than them. They didn't believe that Jesus was going to be resurrected. They were going back to the tomb to take care of business. The disciples were completely depressed and in hiding. Don't you think that the first century Christians would have had the same problem, the same objection? Yes. Well, why did they believe? Uh, not because it's blind faith, because it was a historical proven reality. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus appeared to over 500 witnesses, and then he names them, not all of them, but some of them. Look, if you have a tendency not to believe this, this person's still alive. You go talk to them. This person's still alive. You can go talk to them, and there's 498 others plus that you can go talk to that saw this happen. It's a historical reality that we have to deal with. I quote this every other Christmas, maybe every Christmas, and I just love it. Chuck Colson, who um, most of you don't know, but he went to prison for the Watergate scandal under Nixon. Look it up, Google him if you don't know who he is. But he became a Christian in in, uh, prison, and he said, I know the resurrection is fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years. Think about that. 
not just 12, but he's just talking about the disciples, 500 plus, but the 12 proclaimed it for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, or put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate scandal embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep the lie going for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep it for 40 years while being tortured and beaten? Absolutely impossible. Look, friends, if the resurrection isn't true, then the joke's on us. Everything we're doing right now, we're going to be pitied for. But if the resurrection is true, then we've got to take everything else that Christ says seriously and who he is seriously and what he says about us seriously, that you're his son or his daughter. And we want it to be true, don't we? Can I speak once more to non-believers, to possible skeptics? Julia Barnes, who is a poster child of uh, British secularism, late 1990s into the 2000s-ish is when he kind of made his run. He wrote in his uh, 2008 memoir, I don't, believe, I don't believe in God, but I sure do miss him. And then he wrote at the end, what if I believed that it were true? I don't believe in God, but I sure do miss him. In other words, I'm trying to kind of deal with this because I don't know how to deal with this, but my heart's made for him. If I could just find my way back. Well, how do you find your way back to the healing of the king? The, first of all, the heart. Second, the hands. And lastly, or thirdly, the healing. Life is about relationships, but only one can truly heal. And all the way through the scriptures, uh, it, it prophesies what's going to happen. Look at Malachi chapter 2. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. That was uh, manifested in Mary when she went to the tomb, and she saw that it was empty. She left from there waiting to tell everybody, leaping like a calf from the stall. And I love how Sally jo- Lowe-Jones capsulizes that moment when she says, and it seemed to her that morning as she ran, almost as if the whole world had been made new, almost as if the whole world was singing for joy. The trees, tiny sounds in the grass, the birds, her heart. Was God really making everything sad come untrue? Was he making even death come untrue? You know, the healing of the king, what that means for you, what that means for me. As Robert Flatt says, the resurrection gives my life meaning and direction and the opportunity to start over no matter what my circumstance. Because now there's resurrection hope. In other words, for those of you who are Christians, God doesn't love the future version of you. He doesn't love the potential of you. He actually loves you where you are now. He actually wants a relationship with where you are now. And he heals us. He wants to bring us his healing, rise with healing in his wings. Now, how does he do that? Well, a couple more verses. 1 Timothy 1 says this. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners of which I am the foremost. First of all, healing comes with admitting our sins and not thinking that we can out-sin God's grace. 
Some of you would say, I I feel like I've sinned too much. I've done too much. I've harmed too many people. There's no way God would love me. Well, you're not more of a sinner than Paul was. Paul rounded up Sunday school classes and uh, committed genocide, to put it in modern language. He rounded up Christians and systematically killed them. Think about doing that. Think about you had the authority to round up some journey groups and some Sunday schools and a couple community groups here and systematically kill those Christians. Paul says, I'm the foremost, but Jesus came to save me. You can't be more of a sinner than Paul, and Paul gets it. Uh, Number two, it comes with patience, if you go on, but I received mercy for this reason, that me as a foremost, Jesus Christ, might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him with eternal life. That the goal of this life is not about being perfect, not having the outward appearance, but showing God's patience with us. To go back to the chore analogy, to walk into the room and uh, your father says to you, all the chores were done, and you don't say, oh yes, I, I, you know, I, I happened to do that. You don't take any credit for it. You say, it must have been my older brother. He's so kind to me. He's so gracious to me. We're always putting Christ at front. That's what we do. And then healing comes. Look at it says, verse 17, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory, honor forever and ever. Amen. It's crowning him the king. So some of you might need to repent of your repentance. Uh, You might need to think that, uh, you know, it's not about Uh, thinking through how repentant you are, but trusting the Lord of all of the universe who's declared you justified, sanctified, who's patient with you, and then we crown him. The Westminster Confession kind of brilliantly talks about who this risen king is in the Shorter Catechism number 26 where he says, how does Christ carry out the office of a king? Because let's be honest, we're a democracy. We don't do well with this kingly language. So this helps. Christ carries out the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. In other words, the invitation, I want to subdue you to worship. I'm not commanding it. I'm not telling you you have to. I'm inviting you to worship me. And I will rule and defend you, says the confession. I love that because when sin, when doubts, when struggles, when you feel like you're not strong enough, God says, no, I will defend you. And you know what God says when he defends you? When you're at your worst, God says, you're mine. You're my son and you're my daughter. And then the last part of that confession is he conquers all of his and our enemies the greatest of which is death and our sin and our doubts and your tribulations and your problems so that we could go home. Now, all I want to do is I want to tell you one more story and read you one other thing. But when we get to the home of the king, we've talked about the heart of the king. Uh, He sees not the outward appearance, but your heart. The hands of the king has done everything for us that we can't do. 
of the healing of the king, wants to heal you. God actually wants to heal you. He rises with healing in his wings. He's patient with you. He's kind with you. He shows grace to you. He'll rule over you. He'll defend you. He'll conquer all of your enemies when we crown him king. All of those things happen. But then he also takes us home. And at the end of this sermon, I just want you to get a couple like visions in your head of what God's doing. Because once we say, you are our king, we're going to follow you. And my little 14-year-old heart, when I became a believer, that's what set my little heart on fire, was that I would have a king that I could follow all the days of my life, who would never leave or forsake me, never abandon me. That's what set me on fire towards the Lord. And the home we see in Revelation chapter 19. So put down your pens. If you're taking notes, quit. And just see this vision. It's apocalyptic literature. It's meant to be a vision, not literally. But here we see the the reigning king coming again to take us home. Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes wars. His eyes are like a flame of fire, his head like many diadems. He has a name written on it that no one knows but himself, his clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the true word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he'll tread the trespass of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, it's the king of kings. This is the Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice, and he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of our God. <laughs> Look, the empty tomb doesn't mean that nobody's home. The empty tomb means that your God is coming for you to take you home. A lot of y'all lost money last week because you bet on me to mention the masters in the sermon. That's what you get for betting on your pastor. And what you don't know is I heard about that bet and I made side bets that I wouldn't mention the masters. And so I made a ton of money last week. I have a lot of people that owe me lunch, but some of you are out. Scotty Scheffler, who from what I understand claims Christ, uh, at least in his interviews, uh, when he won, they ask him what he's going to do next. This is the presser right after. And you know what he said? He's at the height of his career. He just won the Masters. He said, honestly, I just want to get home and rest. It's not like I want to go party. I'm looking forward to the after party. I can't wait to go to New York City. I can't wait to do all these things. The height of his career, he's like, actually, I just go home and rest a little bit. Look, the greatest achievement in your life, whatever it is, selling that company, marrying that girl, having those kids, at the end of the day, all it should provoke in you is a desire. That was great. But really, I just, I just want to get home and rest in the arms and in the everlasting hands of my king. Uh, there was a prodigal child. Last story and one thing, and we're done. And um, one day the dad of this prodigal child got a call. 
It was four o'clock in the morning, and the call was, your son got a DUI, and he's in this prison. And so the dad went to this jail, went to the prison, couldn't find him. Went to another one. No, we don't have him here. Went to another county. No, we don't have him here. Went to another county. No, we don't have him here. Finally drove uh, to Chicago, where he thought his son might be shacking up. Opened the door, and sure enough, in one of the bedrooms, his son was there sleeping. Drove for hours. Walked over to his son, kissed him on the cheek, left. Well, the son started visiting uh, his parents a little bit more. Finally went back to church. He committed his life to Christ, and actually today is a pastor in a PCA church. And years later, he, his dad asked him, what turned your life around? What changed you? And the son said, you don't know? The son said, when you came to the house, I only pretended to be asleep. I was wide awake. I knew you had driven all night long in the cold, and I wondered and I feared what you were going to do to me. And all you did was bend down and kiss me on the cheek. And it was the kiss that brought me home. The kiss that brought me home. Because of the resurrection, what's happened to the son, you can feel the kiss of your heavenly father on your cheek. And let it guide you home. Because it's the kindness of God that brings us to repentance. And as it says in Revelation, he wants to eat. He wants to supper with you. He wants intimacy with you. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with you and you with him. So friends, crown him king. Or as Andy Johnson Flint says, Behold, I come. The darkness lightens above all sorrow and all fear. Beyond the cloud, the day star brightens, and all our deliverance is near. The groaning earth awaits the hour when all the wrongs of time are past and clothed with glory and with power. The King of kings will reign at last. So, Father, we pray now that you would help us to do more with Christ than think he's a great set of ideas or moral principles. That we would see him as the king and the risen king. And may his heart see ours. May his hands do what we can't do. May he bring us healing. And may he help us long for home. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Would you stand? hard to preach after that one way or the other thank you guys for uh, leading us so well Uh, if you don't know me my name is Andy Lewis I'm one of the pastors here and uh, we're so glad to have you in this service with us to celebrate Christ our resurrected king and I want to say if uh, you're new to Mitchell Road you probably haven't heard this but if you have been at Mitchell Road for a while you've heard this a dozen times so let me give it to you one more time here it is This world is about relationships. Life is about relationships. And here's why. Because our God is a relational God. He exists, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in eternity throughout all time.
Matter of fact, if you press me and you say, Andy, what's the theme verse of the Bible? I would say it's Revelation 21.3, that God says, I want to be your God, and I want you to be my people, and I will dwell with you. In other words, I'm not just interested in your performance. I actually want a relationship with you, a deep, intense, intimate relationship with you. And we want relationships in life as well. Even if you're an introvert, (laughs) you want relationships. You know, we need relationships through different periods of our life to bring us security and to bring us peace. But none of them, none of the relationships, even the best ones, can ultimately fulfill us, can fully help us. (laughs) For example, when you're young, uh, you need a relationship with parents, Uh, You need somebody to feed you, to clothe you, to protect you, to give you a roof over your head. You need that relationship. And then you outgrow that in elementary school. You need something else. You need a best friend. And, And that's why on all the security things for your financial institutions, it says one of the security questions, what's the name of your childhood best friend? Because most of us have one that we could say, oh, it was this person. They were my... I just knocked over that lily. I, I'm so surprised that it hasn't happened before. Uh, I'm back up a little bit. Um, I, you have that best friend, but that best friend will eventually move on. You have to find some friends in junior high. You have to find some friends in high school. You look for mentors, but finally the mentors can't fully answer all your questions. You might look for a spouse. But even your spouse that you're trying to help someday that you'll hurt them, they can't fulfill all of your needs. You think they can before you get married, but then you get married and you realize they can't possibly fill all of my needs. And you end up hurting each other. Like Friday when I said to my wife, uh, we uh, talked in the morning. I knew she had a hair appointment and we didn't see each other for a while. We reconvened at noon and I saw her and I said, babe, I, I love what they did with your hair. And she looked at me and she said, my appointment's not till three. I said, I am. I am so sorry. And my daughters just put their heads down. They're like, Dad, you're completely off. I mean, it looks the same. I mean, either way, I'm not sure what I'm paying for, but it looks the same. <laughs> or, or my son. My son was five when he said to me, Hey, Dad, I, I know that you're taller than Mom, but I'm pretty sure she's smarter than you. And I'm like, yeah, that's valid. Oh, Whatever relationship you look for in life, maybe one day it's getting the mechanic that's just going to not overcharge you, getting the lawyer that will guide you through the process, giving the doctor that will give you a second diagnosis. We're always looking for some kind of relationship that's going to fully help us, fully heal us, fully make us whole. The reason why I mention that is because in the scriptures this morning, we're, we're not leaving our regularly scheduled programming that we've been doing as a church, which is going through, reading through the scriptures. And what we've seen so far and what we'll continue to see as we read through the Old Testament is this, that the people were always looking to have a relationship with somebody who could fully heal them. And so they looked to the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, And then they looked to the sons and the daughters of the patriarchs. And then they looked to the judges. And they thought maybe if there's just a judge that could fully judge justly. And they couldn't find that. And then they looked finally to the prophets. But the prophets will fail them. And they looked to the priests like Samuel and like Moses. If there was somebody who could just guide us. And in this text, they were trying to find a king. Can we find a king that we can give ourselves to? that we could crown, 
that would protect us, that would establish this relationship with us, because then we'll be secure. Then we'll find peace. But even in this text, we'll find that this king comes up short. So 1 Samuel chapter 16, it says this. When they came, he looked on Eliab and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his statue because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as a man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. Then he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of the sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to the Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes. And he sent and he brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise and anoint anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of the brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went up from Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What we really need... They were looking for a king in David, but what we really need is a risen king, somebody that could do more than David did. See, they were already 0 for 1 on trying to pick a king. They already picked Saul, and he didn't work. And so now they're looking to David. Maybe we can find David. And and as Samuel is sent there by God, this priest sent there by God to pick out this king, they pick out the one that nobody would have picked. If you were picking basketball teams, you would never have picked David. He was the runt of the litter. He was cute, apparently. He had beautiful eyes. But besides that, he didn't have much more going for him. He's just this little puppy of a guy that was out with the sheep. He wasn't even part of the tribal procession. But the beautiful thing is this. Look at verse 7. The heart of God is this, that God looks at the heart, not at the outward appearance. For the Lord sees not as man sees, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. See, it's really easy in this life to believe that it's all about the outward appearance because we've been trained that way, to think that way. We've been trained that when you go on the first date, you dress up. When you go for the interview, you put on your best clothes. When you come to church on the Easter Sunday morning, you put your Sunday's best on. That's all about the outward appearance that somehow... If we can dress up and have the right facade, we can convince people that we're actually good and we don't have that many problems. And so we've been trained over and over again, just keep the show going, just keep the facade going. But the Lord, the heart of the risen king, looks at your heart. Now that's beautiful, and it's beautiful in this sense. David was a mess He was going to have an affair and basically rape Bathsheba. He was going to go through all kinds of trials. He'd have so much blood on his hands that he wasn't going to be able to build the temple. But he repented. And through all of that downfall, God saw his heart. It's a beautiful thing that the heart of a risen king looks at your heart. It looks at my heart and sees it. It's also incredibly scary. 
Because, as it says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful and above all things beyond cure. Like if God actually looks at your heart and looks at my heart, you know what's in your heart. Uh, You know who you hate. You know what your last thoughts are before you go to bed. You know where your mind wanders when you're stuck in traffic. You know the horrible things that you thought about others. You know the arguments that you win in the shower after a bad business meeting. You know all of those things. Your heart is deceitful and my heart is deceitful. So how? How could God look at our sinful hearts, a holy God, and be able to love us? Was the second point, the hands of a risen king. He can only love us because of his hands. Mark chapter 6, when Jesus enters onto the scene, it says, And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who had heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? When they saw Jesus, they said, look at all the things he does with his hands, how he heals, how he forgives. He's done all the things with his hands that we can't do, the hands of a risen king. Um, Pretend for a second that you are the younger sibling of an older brother. Some of you don't have to pretend. Some of you are in that scenario. Uh, But pretend you're the older, the younger sibling of an older brother. And your parents have said, uh, you have to get these chores done and these things done before you can go out on a Friday night. And you don't do them. And you procrastinate. They gave you all week long. You could do them anytime during the week. And your parents are out. It's like 5 o'clock on a Friday. You're supposed to be there at 6 o'clock. You haven't done them all. And you just decide, I'm just going to rebel. I'm just going to be disobedient. I'm just going to go. I'm going to ask for forgiveness later. I'm going to come in and hope, you know, I ran out of time. I'm just going to be completely disobedient. You go out and you party, you do the thing, you come back in at midnight, whenever your curfew is, you open the door, you're just waiting, you're cringing, knowing that your parents are going to come down on you. And you walk in the door and, and your dad says, well done, good and faithful servant. And you say, what? Why would you ever say that? And he said, well, all the chores are done. Everything's done to perfection. Matter of fact, we did more than all. You did above and beyond what we asked you to do. And imagine that it was your older brother that knew what was happening, that could see the writing on the wall, could see your disobedience, and knew the rightful wrath of the Father would come down on you, and he did, by the work of his hands, everything that you couldn't do. And that got credited to your account. And imagine it's even deeper than that. Imagine that the Father, because it says God so loved the world that he sent the Son, that Christ didn't just assuage the wrath of God, he was actually obedient to the plan of redemption. That the Father actually came to the older brother and said, look, the younger brother, the younger daughter, there's no way they're going to be able to get this done, even if they try. Would you do everything that they can't do? And the older brother says, I will, not my will, but your will be done, and I will do it. And because the older brother, out of obedience to the father, has done everything that you can't do, you now have a restored and renewed relationship with the father. That's what's happening when the hands of this risen king has done everything for us that we can't do. So we can have a restored relationship with our heavenly father. But ironically, our hands want to kill him. That's why it says in John chapter 19, 
So they took Jesus and they went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. And Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus between, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, I have written what I have written. Our hands actually wanted to kill Christ, the hands that worked for us. Why? Why would the hands of the people in that day and age, the religious rulers, want to kill Christ? Well, here's why. Have you ever played King of the Hill? Uh, Most of you haven't. But it's a great game. Um, I played it growing up. It's played with, when all you have to play with is dirt, it's a great game. No weed, no bikes, no anything, but we lived in a neighborhood that often was building houses, and so the bulldozer would come in, and they would pile up dirt, and our little 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old guys would kind of go, oh, there's dirt, and we, we were so excited. There'd be this huge, you know, sometimes 10 or 20-foot high pile of dirt, and we would take all day, all day long, and play king of the hill. And the, the goal, if you've never played, uh, and we should do this sometime as a congregation, uh, I'm sure we can get somebody to come bulldoze some dirt for us. Uh, the goal is to get to the top of the hill, to be the king of the hill, to fight your way up there. You push others down. You're pulling people by their ankles. You know, they're losing their balance. You're throwing them down the hill to get to the top of the hill, to be king of the hill. But once you're there, you have to defend your position. And you can never rest. And you're just fighting off enemies. But we all want to be the king of the hill. We want to be at the top. And the question for us today is, do we want to be at the king of the hill or do we want Christ to be king of the hill? And we are willing to stay down and to worship him. Or as George MacDonald said, the central conviction of hell. I mean, the one conviction that everybody in hell shares is this. I am my own and I get to do what I want to do. I am my own. In other words, I don't want God to be God. I want to make my own decisions. I want to be in control of my life. I want to do what I want to do. Now, you might be very reasonable and rational people. It looks like you are from what I can tell. And if you are, you might say, Andy, it's not that harsh. I mean, I know I need a little help. I know I need a little bit of Jesus. I want some spirituality. I I need some of those things. Uh, But I'm not sure I believe in this whole resurrection thing. I'm not sure if I can go that far. But I do like the morals of Christianity. I like the spirituality of Christianity. I like this guy, Jesus. Maybe you want to be a little bit like Pilate. You want to be able to just wash your hands and say, what I've said, I've said. Y'all, you know, I'm not sure. But let me say this. Agnostic belief, saying I'm not really sure if I know whether this is true or not, is an un tenable position when you're dealing with the historical documented truth of the reality of the resurrection. Christ doesn't allow you to have that position. What Christ says is this, either crown me or kill me. Do one or the other. Either crown me or kill me, but don't play nice with me. Don't just dress up and say you need a little bit of me, but not much of me. Don't 
Don't dare say you're just some good morals, some good principles, some good ideas. I'm saying that I'm king, that I'm king over everything. So either crown me king or kill me, but don't play nice with me. And that's what we see in Ephesians 1, when the hand of the heavenly father raises the pierced hands of Christ the Son. It says in Ephesians 1, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he called you to, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints, and what's the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of this great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the reality is, God says, look, I have raised him and I have ascended him. Now, let me just speak just for a few minutes to the skeptics in the room. For the people who say, I just don't, I don't know if I can believe this. I just don't know if I can believe in the resurrection. Here's a couple points. Number one, uh, don't be so prideful to think that you're more enlightened than first century Romans, Gentiles, and Jews. The, the people in the first century had the same objection. They had the same concern. Uh, that's why the disciples were in hiding. That's why the women were going back to the tomb to kind of take care of the final details. They also would have been flabbergasted by a resurrection. But the argument biblically from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is this. If you don't believe it, he's appeared to at least 500 other people. And then Paul names some of them. So if you don't believe this, don't take it by blind faith, Paul says. Go ask this person. Here's where they live. Go ask this person. Here's where they live. Go talk to this person. Here's where they live. They have actually seen it. We've not done this thing in the corner. It has been everywhere. And so you have the same objection they have. Their objections were overwhelmingly taken care of by the historical reality of it. Or as Chuck Colson said, I'd love to use this Chuck Colson quote uh, basically every year, every other year. Chuck uh, was put in prison for the Watergate scandal, and you can look it up if you don't uh, know what that means. But he said, I know the resurrection is fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, put in prison. They would not have endured that if it wasn't true. Watergate, another scandal, embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep the lie going for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep it going for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Look, if the resurrection isn't true, then we should be the most pitied of all people. Because the joke's on us. You, you all got dressed up. We bought lilies. We knocked them down. We put them back up. We did the whole thing. If, the resur- if this whole thing is a farce, but if it is true, then we have to take everything that Jesus says seriously about who we are, what this world's about, and about who he is. 
We have to take it all seriously. You can't just say he's a good moral teacher. So we have the heart of the king, the hands of the king, but I want you to see the healing of the king, the healing of the risen king. Life is about relationships, and only one relationship can truly heal you. It was prophesied about in Malachi chapter two, chapter four, uh, when it says in Malachi, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. In other words, the only relationship that can truly heal you is not that teacher, not that coach, not that parent, not that lover, not that business relationship. The only one that can truly heal you is the one who can rise with healing in his wings. And once we realize that, you leave leaping like calves coming out of the saw. That's why Mary, after she had seen the empty tomb, left from there to go tell everybody And I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones says it when she says, and it seemed to me, to her that morning, as she ran, almost as if the whole world had been made anew, almost as if the whole world was singing for joy, the trees, the tiny sounds in the grass, the birds, and her heart. Was God really making everything sad come untrue? Was he making even death come untrue? In other words, as Robert Flatt says, the resurrection gives my life meaning and direction and the opportunity to start over no matter what the circumstances. The resurrection gives new morning mercies. So if you're not a Christian, here's the great thing for you. God doesn't just love the potential you. He doesn't just love the future you. He doesn't just love the sanctified you. He actually loves you now. With all of your mess and with all of your problems, with all of your doubts and with all of your fears, he rises with healing in his wings. He rises to heal everything that's broken in your life. Now, how does he do that? Well, 1 Timothy shows us a little bit. 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. This saying is trustworthy and true, deserving full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the foremost. Healing starts when we begin to say, I'm a sinner. And some of you might say the opposite. You might say, I've actually sinned too much. There's no way he's going to love me for the things that I've done. But there's no way you've sinned more than Paul. Paul, in modern language, Paul rounded up Sunday school classes and community groups full of people who worship Jesus and systematically killed them. Let's not clean up the record for Paul too much. He was a part of Christian genocide. And Paul was the one who says, I'm the chief of sinners, and he displayed his grace in me so that he might show his perfect patience. Verse 16, but I received mercy for this reason, that he might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So here's great news. It's not about your performance. It's not about your perfection. It's not about you getting it right all the time. It's about living a life that displays the patience of God and the mercy and the grace of God to you so that you're free from having to perform and have it all together. You can say, I don't have it all together, but God is so patient with me. He's so loving to me. He's so kind to me. I'm going to display that. And then lastly, to crown him 
Look at what it says in verse 17. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. To eventually say, okay, I'm going to crown you. I I see everything. I'm not going to just follow you for a while. I'm not just going to follow you and see where you lead me to see whether I like it or not. I'm not just going to trust you a little bit. You're my king. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to lay down my life for you. I'm going to crown you the king of kings. The Westminster Confession helps with this a little bit when it says, how does Christ carry out this office of a king, a healing king? Christ carries out the office of a king in subduing us to himself, meaning in wooing us. You know, God doesn't say, get down and worship me. Bend your knee. No, he subdues us by his love, by his kindness, in ruling and defending us. When other people say you're no good, when your own heart says to you, I'm no good, I'm a loser, I've never lived up my potential, God says, no, 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 not on my watch. You're my son, you're my daughter. I'm gonna defend you from your own doubts, from your own sins. And then in restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. And what's our greatest enemy? Death. Our own sin, our own uh, immortality that we can't, nobody's been able to conquer that to this day, and he conquers it, so we only pass through the shadow of it. So, friends, let me just end with this. The um, heart of the king, the hands of the king to do everything we can't do, the healing of the king, and then lastly, the home of the king. I want you to see this vision. I'm going to read from Revelation, which also is this language, this apocryphal language, which is meant to give us a vision of our risen king and what it would be like when he comes back. It's just meant to give us this vision. So just put down your pens and enjoy this. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire and his head are like many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he's called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in five linen, white and pure war, following him on white horses and from his mouth comes the sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he'll rule with a rod of iron and he'll tread the wine presses of the fury of the wrath of God almighty on his robe and on his thigh the name will be written the king of kings and the lord of lords and I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice calling to all the birds that fly directly overhead come gather for the great supper of God come and gather The empty tomb doesn't say that no one's home. It says that you're going home. Let me just say this really quickly. Uh, A lot of you lost money last week because I didn't mention the masters in the sermon. And uh, I heard about the bet, and I bet against you, and I get to control what I say in the sermon, so I actually won more money. Uh, I won a bunch of lunches off of that, so thank you. Scotty Scheffler won, and uh, they asked him how he's doing, and he said, I actually just want to go home and rest. Not I, not I want the party. Scotty uh, claims Christ. Not I want this party or I want these things. I actually just want to go home and rest. And that's what God offers us. A home to rest. Your, your highest accomplishment. You sell the company. You marry the girl. 
It's never going to fulfill you. You just want to go home and rest. So this Annie Johnson Flint quote, Behold, I come, the darkness lightens above all sorrow and fear. Beyond the clouds, the day star brightens and delivers all is near. The groaning earth awaits the hour when all the wrongs of time are past and clothed with glory and with power. Our king of kings will reign at last, and he wants to take you home. Father, we pray that you would guide us and direct us, that we would bow the knee willingly to you, that we would follow you all the days of our lives that we would cherish you and that the kiss of the son would be sweet to us. Father, we thank you for the heart of you, our risen king, your hands, the healing of the risen king, and finally the home of the risen king. We pray in your name, amen.